Camber House. Give me my respect. Welcome to Camber House. Now rocking with the best. Join your hosts, Jeremy and James, as they take an unfiltered and uncensored look at the car industry and motorsport across the globe. You can't find the right tool in this garage. You don't belong near a car. Welcome to the home of car culture. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Camber House. Today we've got a very exciting guest. Um, this man has been involved in motorsport for most of his life, and not to age him, but that is a decent amount of time. Um, he currently sits as the president of the Barbados Motoring Federation, uh, which is the federation that's in charge for all motorsport and clubs in Barbados. Um, he has also... Um, not too long ago, picked back up rallying as a little hobby here in Barbados. And above all of that, he is a FIA Formula One steward. So welcome, Andrew Malu, to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks, Jay. And, and thanks, James. Good to meet you. Good to meet you, too. I'm sorry to say that uh, Jeremy did a co-drive for me once. I do. We'll get How to was that? that? We're going to get to that. <laughs> just, just saying, he said, I, I, I used to rally or I rallied. I just remember I had a one very... Inept co-driver <laughs> at one time, but Jeremy was good. I'm, so <laughs> I'm glad we started off that way. Yeah. Um, what we do here on the show, Andrew, the first thing we normally do here is ask you what your earliest memory of motorsport was. Can you remember back to the first thing that triggers your mind about motorsport, whether it was local or international, or something you saw? Is there anything that stands out? Yeah, there actually is, and I, I do quote it a fair, a fair amount. And, and I, I obviously I was going to motorsport from very young with my dad involved, but I have a, a vivid recollection of Brands Hatch in 1972 at uh, eight years old, which was when my dad was the first international kind of event I went. To. I think it was his first Formula One race as well. Um, but uh, but sometimes you know memories from that long ago. Sometimes you're not sure if it is the actual memory you have, or is it the pictures that you saw, is it the stories that you told. But I, I actually have a, a, a very good memory of, of that day. At of Brands Hatch. Hatch. Okay. Did you have a favorite um, driver growing up? I mean, I know that was eight, but after that, did you have, did you watch Formula One? Were you did you have a favorite driver? Um. So so I went to that race in '72, and then the next race I I went to was in Brazil in. Uh, I don't know '90 or '91. And that, and then I started about following motors, uh, Formula One. Then I really, I don't know that I followed it in between, um, but I think Emerson Fittipaldi. If I go back to the early years, because and I think that's because I really liked his car. I think the car was pretty. That that yeah. top player special car was yeah. Lotus. Yes, Lotus, the black and the gold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I I loved that car. So that was that. And then, um, you know, I was never a Senna fan. Uh, I was a Schumacher fan. Um, I am a Schumacher fan. Of course. Um, actually, interesting. This past weekend, I saw his son giving Lewis, Lewis the, the helmet. helmet. Yeah, that which was is, special. Which is pretty special. For sure. Um, and it looks like Mick is going to get his drive shortly. Maybe we'll see. We'll see what happens. I um I remember, obviously, when you were when I was young, because we've known each other for a long time. Obviously. Um, yes, godson. Yes, you are my godfather. <laughs> um, but I remember when I was young, in those, um, what I referred to on, on a couple podcasts ago with Neil Bernard as the glory days of Bushy Park, um, being, up on, being up in the clubhouse, at the time you had what would have been like one of the most ridiculous GTA Swifts, huge slicks, black Havoline livery. Um, do you remember what it was like racing in those days? And, and was, that, was that kind of your... Were you racing prior to this car that I have a memory of in that Swift, or was that like your first kind of... Yeah, we go back a little further than that, Jay. So, um, <laughs> yeah, first racing, though, was when Bushy Park restarted in those years. Um, and that, that, I mean, that would be a story all of itself, but that was basically Richard Ruiz and Sean Gill and Roger Skeet, Roger mm. Hill. We used to go up to Bushy Park on a Saturday afternoon. William Branch w w w was there. And we had to clear all the bush and slowly. And after about four, five, six months of going up there on Saturdays afternoons and kind of doing laps and so on, it was when then uh, Ward Simpson and, and uh, Brian DeFreitas then decided to actually reopen Bushy Park. So that would have been then what you saw with us racing at, at, at Bushy Park. Um, but before that, uh, my memory of racing at Bushy Park would have been in the, in the control tower with my dad then in the early 70s. 
and the and the vivid memory going back to what you were asking. You know, other memory that I definitely have yeah. is the day that um, Mike Atwell on the start line basically touched wheels between his terrapin and one of the Brabums or something, and he ended up on his head. And um, and uh, you know, he, I, if you don't know the story of that, that was quite something. He nearly died. I mean, the end day he had big surgery to relieve clots on his brain and stuff oh like that. So I, I remember that vividly as a little mm. boy in Utah. Well, that's something that would obviously stick in your mind. Yeah, it's funny yeah. how those kind of accidents, you know, yeah. a lot of memories are based off of those kind of... Sure. Those but be, but be long before the uh, GTI, there, were, yeah, there, was a, there was my sister's uh, automatic starlet. <laughs> that was the... We, we, we rallied that. Sean Gill and I, that was our first rally car. And this is obviously well before the days of roll cages and all those types of safety things. Yeah, well, when we were rallying, there definitely was no roll cages, but um, eventually that car got a roll cage and it got and it got a gearbox instead of being automatic as yeah. well. That which was nice. Which was nice. And uh, I can't remember if we won any June rallies in that, but Sean and I went on. I think to win five five June rallies. Then uh, the Swift came. Swift came in '92, so I'd had a, uh, at least ten years of rallying before he right. started Swift. Okay. Fair and was enough. it always rallying for you, or did you start in, in track? I mean, what Bushy Park was, basically? It was Trump. Oh, right. I, well, I guess so, yeah. Right. So was it, did you always want to get into rallying, or, I mean? Well, I don't know that the disciplines through the years in Barbados have been really different. I mean, what has happened is that you, at one time, rallying was really big, and everybody had rally cars, and nobody had race cars. And then the same guys, um, you know, migrated their cars to race cars, fact, the first year we all went down to uh, Guyana to race, they all laughed at us and said, you know, why are you bringing rally cars to race with us down here? They mm. laughed at Roger Skeet's 1.9 Peugeot rally car, you know, standing up in the air, big suspension and stuff. And we, we won, you know, we beat all these guys down there. And, but those cars then slowly morphed and we stopped rallying. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and we were all, all racing and then racing was big because you really, it's very difficult to do both for many people to do both. That's the challenge. Yeah. So you either have a, a car that's good for rallying, or you have a car that's good for the track. Yeah. Yeah. What you used to do? Did you ever drive the Swift in rallies? Yeah. So what happened is after Bushy Park uh, um, died off, died down um, when it was closed, um, and before then, because the rally club reopened it, and then uh, it closed, and then Barl reopened it. But during those years when it wasn't closed, many of us then had to convert our race cars back to rally cars and that was horrendous uh, because trying <laughs> trying to drive my what was then i don't know 1500 cc swift on 10 inch slicks um on in rallies we used to go through three gearboxes every rally we used to have them there you're ready for them to break because and that's that's how it was that's how it was yeah yeah, yeah. Wow. Uh, but then all those cars are gone now and everybody has purpose-built rally cars and a lot of guys who are rallying don't have race cars true very true, true. and you t- so was what was the last because there was like a period where you weren't racing or rallying so what was the last competition car you drove before that break or how was the swift i i, I sold the swift in, in 97 uh when i uh, when i left simpson motors um i sold the swift again in england uh, and he raced it at, at, at silverstone lost track of it now it probably doesn't exist um but from 97 to 2007 um i just focused on from motorsport point of view i was i was focused on the administration and we did a lot of good things in those in those years yeah and then i passed the used car a lot one day and saw the, the subaru that you so helped me with but um anyhow <laughs> and i bought the subaru yeah so sorry i have a question well I, this is the i mean you had the subaru right up until the latest r5 that you've gone into or did you have reiterations of the subaru over many years well, you know, you didn't mean to ask this, but I'll give you a different answer. Go on. So, so uh, the first rally I ever went into and the first rally car I had was a four-wheel drive Subaru in 1981. Right. Okay, which was a 1980-1600 DL four-wheel drive Subaru that you could engage the four-wheel drive with a lever. <laughs> and that was, I thought it was, that was hot, man. I had this <laughs> thing. And, uh, How did you do? Car- How did you do? Well, the first year I didn't have a driver's license, so my sister's boyfriend had to, to go into the rally. He was the driver and I was the co-driver, uh, or I was the co-driver, I was the, uh, the navigator, as we call it. And uh, how did we do? We were lost most of the time, but we didn't stick up. We didn't <laughs> stick up because we had four-wheel drive. Right, um, that was good. So, 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 so then, uh, so uh, what was your question? <laughs> he, was asking, he was asking you about the, um, 
if you've had if the if the Subaru was your first kind of rally car, yeah, it was uh, to, be, to be quite honest, the first decent rally car and a, and, a, and a car with some some decent performance. That that Group N Subaru had some grunt. I mean, it was an old four car, mm-hmm. but it still had some grunt to it, and you could get yourself it was in a fun. lot of trouble. Oh yeah, it was fun. Oh, yeah. I was very grateful for the couple of rallies I did with you. I mean, I mean, obviously, I've bounced around into a, f- a few navigator seats before. Um, you were the first four wheel drive car I ever went in, and it was. I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate you still tell everyone that I'm faster than Josh Reed. I really appreciate that. <laughs> so, thank you. Thanks we'll have to get Josh on next. Yeah, right? I'm, not, I'm not sure we'll go that far, but you certainly tried your best. I heard it. I mean, you heard it, right? Everyone's <laughs> heard it. Yeah. <laughs> no, the group band was a lot of fun. I'm, you've never invited me to come for a ride in the R5, so I'm a bit upset about that. Well, let's, so let, yeah, let's, let's just, we're going to do the R5 thing right now. Okay. And, um, did you, yeah, how did the process of you going into R5? Tell me about. Was it a choice that everybody seemed to be doing it? Was it a discussion you had? Because we've spoken to Rob Swan um, about him and Panton's relationship and how they were always going to go WRC. It seemed like they just wanted to be everybody. But whereas there's this growing, you know, R5 class, which we think is going to be close and exciting. Yeah, I think it's the most exciting group. Yeah. Walk me through the process of you deciding. Well, for, for me, there's two things to it. Uh, I, I sat on the uh, FIA Rallies Commission for a number of years, and I could see the rules coming down. And uh, at that time, I would have had what was, in, the, in their words, an N4, and then that was being converted into an R4. But the, um, the R5 was, um, excuse me, that's okay. The R5 was, uh, was clear in the regulations. And for a few years, I pushed um, at the club level at the rules to say, you know, why don't we adopt R5 as being where we want to go because obviously the the two liter um, WRC cars were coming to the end of their life. Yep. Um, you know, there's still one in Barbados, but it, it's tough. It's tough because it's a nice car, but it's 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 older. It's mm-hmm. an old car. Um, and eventually, when that was uh, adopted as a regulation, uh, and David Quelo uh, made the first adventure yeah. into yeah. into one here. Yeah. Um, I was keen to, to, to follow that, uh, but it was a matter of, frankly, finding the, the right one at the right price. And at my age, I was not willing to try left-hand drive again. It didn't work for me the first time. Right. So once it was clear within the club regulations that they didn't have a problem with left-hand or right-hand drive, you could do that. There was no performance gain. If anything, it's a, it's a little bit of a backward step because the geometry of the, of the, of the right-hand drive is a little bit different. different. Um, I was eager to go in there. I'm not eager um, to go into WRC because, frankly, if you're going to go into WRC, you have to be the guy who is willing to put everything on the line every time. And shit happens sometimes with that, as we have seen. And knock wood, thankfully, you know, uh, everybody's okay. No no issues. Um, You went to the UK to to get this one, or this is, uh, or. Where'd you where'd you find the car? Uh, it was I, I found it off the uh, the internet. There, there are a number of, of, of resellers Facebook of marketplace. Cars. Yeah, and it wasn't quite Facebook Marketplace. <laughs> yeah. This and this and that. No, yeah. Yeah. Imagine if you could just buy off <laughs> off of marketplace. <laughs> but there, there are three or four good resellers of yeah. uh, of, of, of rally cars. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, this one came from KG Motorsports, Kieran Graffing or something. I think his name is. Uh, out of Ireland, and uh, and that's because I, I went looking for right-hand drive. And yeah. In Ireland, they have a lot of right-hand, right-hand drive drives. R5s. They convert them. So, yeah, that's where I got, you, got that from. Did you drive it before you bought it? No. It came, it, you got it here somehow, and then the first time you drove it was when it got here. First time I ever drove an R5 was when it got here. Right. Wow. And I was terribly disappointed because I drove it uh, from, from the port where it came in, and I drove it home, but I didn't realize you had to press the R5 button, which was the go fast button for it to do anything. So I, oh, drove, so when you <laughs> I drove home a 1600cc, normally aspirated, it seemed like dead as hell car. And I was really upset. I, I have made a huge mistake. Oh, we're supposed to go rallying in this. <laughs> so it felt wow. like a step back from the group end. It. it was terrible. It was awful. But so the thing, it has one button and you press this button and it goes from, um, I, it goes to completely berserk when you just press that one button. So how did, so after, whenever, I'm assuming Brett Judd probably guided you and said you forgot to press this. When you did eventually press it, what was that like? How was, it, how was the first experience like properly driving the R5? Well, well, it was nice to only press one button because you see the Subaru, you had to there turn on the, this and turn on that and yes. turn on the water spray and, and, and set the different... Uh, the R5, there's one button and there's nothing else. But honestly, it transforms the car. The car sounds different. It, everything about it, the dashboard changes to a whole different thing to look at. 
And the car is extremely quick. Uh, I mean, it doesn't have the grunt of a two-liter, uh, a 1600 and a two-liter just can't compete yeah, with yeah, the torque. Yeah, the same. Right? They're not. So it's a, you know, it's a 32 millimeter restrictor is what it is. They're all, the, all, all the cars are the same other than Ken Blocks. This is a new one. Uh, but they're, they're all the same, but they're quick. Uh, but they're not quick in terms of if you make a mistake and you want to make back up that 100 yards where you, or you're off the RPM or something, you don't have that grunt there. Yeah. You've got to keep it singing and keep the momentum going with it. Okay. What's right. the grip? What's the grip like? I mean, oh, absolutely phenomenal. Like I mean, I was talking to someone about it last night. Uh, it, as an example, my Subaru, when I would go around Bushy Park on the, that, um, that rally race, the Champions Track, if you clip a curb, this thing is up on two wheels. In the R5, you can drive over every curb at uh, Bushy Park and like if it wasn't there, you would not even feel it. Yeah. Wow. Right? Ab- yeah and the other thing in. I can tell is I would do, if I do four or five laps with the Subaru around Bushy Park, if I'm going clockwise, the two left side tires are done, finished. I can drive that R5 for an hour at Bushy Park on the same compound of tire. The car is very similar in weight and the tires wear evenly. It just, tells you tires are working. Yeah. yeah. And the balance is obviously yeah. phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, as far as newer, it's almost unfair to compare them, but it, um, no, the R5s are really, really impressive. I'm very excited. From the R5 a is a proper, <coughs> sorry, you can drop it, Jeremy. No, the, cool. the real difference is the R5 is a developed rally car. Yeah. It's not a road car that someone, like the Group N concept was start with a production car yep. and change a few bits and you have Group N. That's not R5. R5 set out, everything on it Purpose is built, built uh, for that. Yeah. And then things work. The other, the other yeah. thing to remember <laughs> is that you know, people think, oh, you spend a lot of money for the R5. Well, they're not that expensive in terms of rally cars. Yes. And then things don't break. Yeah. Yeah. They work. And the running cost is supposed to be pretty good compared Very to... Very good. Yeah. In the year I've had it, I would say the running costs have been you know, one quarter of what it was with the Subaru. One wow. quarter. Yeah. Wow. Usage of tires. Axles that you break all the time. And just the stuff you need to maintain yeah. and available. All, everything is price controlled on the R5 as well. That's what, yeah, right. that's what I think is fantastic yeah. as well. No, it's, it's, it's hard to argue against and that's the truth. Just yeah. a quick one, because you mentioned Ken Block is coming with, his, with the newer version. What's yeah. the difference? I don't know. It's faster. Um, it's a Mark II. That's so my so that, is that an excuse already? Is that an excuse already? No, 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 no excuse. I'm going to beat him. <laughs> so this is, this is the, what they call him, the, the Fiat, the two. So, yeah. It's but a it's, Mark II. Right. Well, yeah, we're but trying if, to figure this out. well, that's how well, WRC is referring to the classification. It's still an R five car, but his is just some upgrade. WRC two, right? So, uh, yeah, yeah, that's a different issue. So the the FIA naming of the rallies has changed now for the third time in a while. It's All of confusing. us have gotten accustomed to the R's, right? R five, four, three, two. Everyone. Yeah. So they've they've abandoned that. Yeah. So now which you have nice. WRC, which is for the professionals with the big cars mm-hmm. and yeah. stuff. You have WRC two which are R5 cars exactly, with professional point, yeah. teams. Yeah. And WRC3 is R5 cars with independents, ah. not factory teams. So because this so is a factory, is a factory and sport car, WRC2. Yes, and he's a priority driver. Yes. Right. Okay. But the, okay. car would be, the car would have differences to yours. Fundamentally, it's a completely different car. So this is a Mark II. If you remember Mark I Escort, Mark II Escort, yes. Mark I Fiesta, Mark II. So all of us um, who have the, the five uh, R5s that are here now, the two Skodas and the three Fords, they all are on the Evolution II of the engine. So it's the Mark I car on the second Evolution version two. of the engine. Okay. Right. What Ken Block has is the Mark II car on another evolution of the en- so uh, engine. One that's not been seen yet. Yeah, uh, and uh, well, not certainly not in Barbados. So we would expect that it has, it's a lot more drivable. Uh, it's got a bit more horsepower. It's a better car, no, no doubt about that. Well, at least you guys got home court advantage. We have home court advantage and uh, Ken's record is, is, is 100%. He should put sponsorship on the on the bottom of the car, shouldn't he? But no, no, I, I, I like did that just same. for him because I know he's going to be watching it. But yeah, he's, he's going to have a lot of fun. tuning into this. I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he's a like keen listener of Camber House. Um, <laughs> um, I want to. I'm going to finish with rally. I think at the end and goals for this year and stuff. But I think we want to get into a little bit about the uh, BMF and how you became involved in the BMF to start with. Yeah, the BMF story I, I, I think is a great one. We, we, um, the, the history of Barbados, you, you can't deny a small country like this, where we were, we originally had, when I got involved in motorsport, there were really two clubs. There was the uh, motoring club and there was the Barbados Rally Club. The Barbados Rally Club was predominantly uh, white people and the uh, motoring club of Barbados was predominantly black people. 
And that's the history of Barbados. There's no sense denying it. That's how it was. Mm-hmm. But by the time I came to my generation, uh, that those color lines were not something that we saw. And uh, what we saw through the late or mid-80s into the 90s was that the clubs really operated together. But historically, the Barbados Rally Club was the holder of the uh, National Sporting Authority that was recognized as the main club, and the FIA also recognized it. Um, so in order to put all clubs on equal grounds and leave the past behind the past, uh, all clubs agreed to form the Motoring Federation, um, which would be over all the clubs, so all the clubs would be equal. So that happened in 2000 with five founding member clubs, uh, the Rally Club being one, Motoring Club, Vaucluse, Automobile Association, and the Barbados... Um, left one out the Karting Association, I think were the five originals. Um, and that was in 2000, and I was elected as president then. Prior to that, I had been the FIA delegate for the BRC when they were members of the, of, of the FIA. Since then, um, you know, what the BMF has been able to do, and we've had some great committees. I'm, I'm the president, I'm the only the figurehead, really. I have no vote. Mm-hmm. I just kind of heard the sheep or, or heard the, the, the cats, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, we, we have an insurance program, we have road closures, we have the duty-free import scheme, you know, we have, we've had all, all the various benefits from uh, the grants, Bushy Park restarted, so we really have blossomed by all of the clubs coming together uh-huh. under one federation, and of course we have new clubs as well, we've got clubs like BAD who've, who, who yep. have been formed since then, and great things happening with that. And yeah. yeah, phenomenal. So how does that, um, so even prior to coming into the to or being elected president of the BMF, you you were you said you were an FIA delegate. Mm-hmm. Um, so that position or whatever maintained as you transitioned into this BMF presidency, and, and or how did that, how did that like how do you become an FIA delegate? Right. So the the Barbados Rally Club was a member of the FIA. Right. And they were entitled to nominate someone from the uh, from their group to represent the Barbados Rally Club at the FIA meetings. I had shown an interest in doing that, and it took a time and a money commitment and so on to do it. If I think Simon Gilmore may have done it for a couple of years. He's the only other person who did it. And then uh, I was on the Rally Club committee as treasurer, and uh, I said I would do it, and I did it for a few years. So, But when we transitioned then to the Motoring Federation, a federation was viewed differently as a club. So the president of the federation represents the federation at the uh, the FIA. And the easiest way to think of the FIA is to think of it as United Nations. It's a one right. country, one vote, which is quite scary because when Barbados votes, we actually have Obviously. more votes than United States of America right. because they because don't have an automobile club. Their automobile club, the uh, the American Automobile Association, is not part of the FIA, so they don't get to vote on the mobility side. So we have twice as many votes as them. So why is that? Crazy. Why why are they not involved? Is it just because America? I know they want to do things (laughs) themselves and they have their own things. No, but there is some legitimate things to it. I mean, uh, it's pretty scary when you think. I think Germany, uh, their automobile club, uh, I think they have forty-five million members. Jeez. Okay. Uh, the automobile clubs uh, tend to be businesses, like the Canadian Automobile Association, AAA, AA, and they're big businesses. They're in roadside assistance, mm-hmm. they're in insurance, they're, and they get into other things. They own property. So these are large businesses. Um, the federation, the FIA, is, does not have a commercial motive. So it's difficult for commercial entities to, to, to bow down oh, to a superior power who has no commercial motives. Right. That makes sense. Makes total sense. Yeah, I, I can understand that. That's interesting, though. I mean, I didn't really, I don't know if anybody really knows. I mean, people know, people that are in motorsport are familiar with it, definitely know what FIA is. But For sure. I it's mean, just a um, governing body. Yeah, you know? exactly. Um, which I guess leads us to kind of, I guess, the most exciting part for me and uh, that we wanted to talk about was the, the journey to becoming an F1 steward and how this came about, how the opportunity came about. Um, can you walk me through how this happened? Yeah. You know, I, I've thought about it many times to think of how to connect the dots. I'm not sure if I remember exactly how to connect <laughs> the dots. Um, but I, I've always had uh, an interest in rules and how rules are written. And, and, and 
and I, th I think at some point in going to these uh, FIA meetings, I probably expressed an opinion here or there. Um, and uh, I did express an opinion in, in participating in the, uh, the Rallies Commission, and I was elected to the Rallies Commission um, to represent the, this region, because each, each region had a, a representative. So I, um, I started on the Rallies Commission, and I would uh, help with drafting of regulations and so on, and I guess at some point somebody noticed something. Mm -hmm. And uh, when the presidency changed uh, from Max Mosley to Jean Todd, um, Mm -hmm. uh, there were opportunities were given for people to do um, training uh, for for single seater because up to that point I had been doing rallying, I'd right. been rallying Um and I think it was either oh, 2009 or 2010 I entered the, uh, the single seater training, uh, which was very informal back then. They didn't actually have a training. The way it was is that they told you, you go to these two races and sit in the storage room and learn what you can. And, oh. uh, and my first race like that was um, was uh, Montreal in 2010, I think it was. Uh, I didn't even know how to get to the track. They didn't you know, provide a whole lot. For I didn't know where the room was. I didn't know a thing. And I went in there. And who was in the room to drive a steward that weekend? But Emerson Fittipaldi. No way. Wow, yeah. full circle. Back oh to when you were eight years old. That's quite a story, actually. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so I have pictures of, of, of him. You, you may remember, uh, Jay, when I had that back surgery. And I, yes. I, I had on this big thing because I'd had spine surgery and I uh, felt so embarrassed and thinking I was wearing this and sitting in the back of the room. And, and that was the, I think that was the, if I'm not mistaken, that was the race that uh, Lewis Hamilton, driving for McLaren, parked his car just after turn one, two, three complex there um, in qualifying because he didn't have enough fuel to get back to the pit. And the regulation was that you had to get, you had to have enough fuel for them to take a sample and big controversy. So I sat there the first time and heard all of this going on. And I was like, Commotion, what, man. does this really go on? <laughs> and I'll give you one funny story, which I've told people is that uh, eventually the stewards of that day uh, decided to, um, to fine McLaren 10,000 euros and I was thinking, my God, ten thousand euros—that is a lot of money. How is this going to, you know, how is this going to go over? And just as I was absorbing that, um, Christian Horner came and said, "Look, I spend more than ten thousand euros on flowers on the weekend." So, so it sounds if, like if, something that he would say. Yeah, to yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> so, so, and, and and I've heard him talk about it as well. So I'm not breaching any confidence. But you know, the point was a lesson to be learned there that you know uh, the rule. You know, if, if that's what it took to get to, 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 to pole position was to yeah. run on fumes, they're willing to do it. And take the fine. Take the fine. Yeah. yeah. Mm. That's that, interesting. That so is very 2000 interesting. And 2010 is, so you went through two years of training? Yeah, I think it was two years of training. 2010 to 12. Yeah. And how many other, um, you know, you said Jean Todd, when it changed over, this was like an initiative from him, right? To get younger people into steward shooting. Yep. Um, was there a lot of trainees like you, or was it just you? I remember there were two. Okay. Uh, a guy called Tim Mayer, uh, myself. Uh, uh, Tim Mayer, for those real motorheads that are listening to this, his father was Teddy Mayer. Teddy Mayer and, and Bruce McLaren started McLaren. Those were the two oh, that wow. did McLaren. Gotcha. So uh, Teddy died many years ago. Tim is his son, American guy. And he had promoted IndyCars throughout... Um, South America and so on. And uh, so Tim and I did training together. Tim is now um, uh, chairman of the F1 Stewards. There are four, there are four um, chairmen, and Tim is one of them. Uh, well, very proud. He's done a, a great job. And Tim was here in Barbados a number of times. He was, uh, he, he was the um, race director for Global Rallycross. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, so wow, Tim, interesting. Tim has been here a few times. Okay. And he still is uh, one of the top stewards, um, chairman of stewards at World Rallycross. Um, he, he basically is a professional steward. Wow. He does. Yeah, so yeah, so your question was, it was, as far as I know, there was only two of us. Now there's a very formal program, the last four years. Okay. In fact, Warren Gollop did it uh, this year. Um, he, he went and, and, and attended the first of the stewards training, and there's an actual, there's kind of a ladder now that if you do well on the test after the uh, four-day learning, you take a test, and then if you do well, they appoint you at uh, some lower series, maybe F4, F3, and then they evaluate you over a period of years before you get um, eventually, hopefully. But at the end of the day, there are only 12 um, FIA 
F1 stewards. Um, of so, which you are one. Luckily, yes. Um, luckily. Um, it's quite amazing. Um, yeah, we'll take a quick break and um, we'll be right back. Alrighty, so back for part two. Um, I think we're just getting into, well, we've gone through the process of what it was like as an F1 or to get to become an F1 steward. Um, what's a race weekend look like for you when you go to a race? What, how, do, how does, you know, you leave Barbados, what happens? Yeah, well, I, let, let's start from, from the racetrack because uh, the rest is just travel, you know, depending okay. on where, where it is. Yeah. Uh, normally arrive uh, on the Wednesday, uh, first official meeting um, is always a track walk on, on, on Thursday mornings, always at 9 o'clock. Charlie's schedule was always, that's it. Uh, Charlie uh, Whiting, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so Michael... Um, and what's yeah. the purpose there? So you guys got a clear vision of track limits, you understand kind of just... Is that it? I mean... I and who are you walking with at this point, or is it just stewards? So there's quite a group that, that, that walks. So on, on any one race weekend, uh, race weekend F1, usually has support races so, so they the track walk is for everyone so it could be the stewards of f1 f2 f3 it could be uh, sometimes the porsche cup cars are there or if mm. there's something else so you'll have the race directors the deputy race directors for each of the series uh the stewards the clerk of the course chief marshal uh, and there, it's multifaceted what you're, you're doing. From, from a steward's point of view, uh, what we're looking at is uh, trying to get some orientation to the track of what the drivers might see in different areas, positions of, of, of lights, position of, of, of track marshals. Uh, but you also get then to be involved in some of the things that the race director is looking at, which is primarily a safety matter. And, you know, is the track ready for it to go live? Um, and every time a track evolves, so, you know, they may have a new place that they're putting the camera, so they'll take a look at that, is it in a safe place and so on, or they've put a camera into a curb, or right. they've decided to put some bollards in to tell you if you go off in this curb, you have to do that, or mm -hmm. we put a new cheat loop in somewhere. So all of those things we, we get to talk and discuss. Um, for me, what's useful about it, I, I, I do think, is getting a clear orientation to the track for that weekend and and, and the, the the camera the television cameras don't do a good job with the undulations and blind spots and so on yeah that's so so that's the thursday nine right. o'clock is track meeting um it's track walk uh then you know we, we we end up signing a bunch of documents and entries and a lot of mundane administrative stuff the next big thing that we normally are involved in is the uh or we are involved in is the team meters team managers meeting which is on a Thursday afternoon. Uh, at that meeting, uh, the team managers speak about the last race and speak to the race director, any issues, any things uh, that they have noticed out on the track that made me addressing before the cars go live uh, the next day. Um, so again, some more admin stuff comes out of that. Um, and uh, you know, the cars are then out of park for me and so th issues could come up at that point. Friday, then you uh, you have two sessions with F1 on the track, um, and at the end of that day, um, you have the drivers briefing, and so then the drivers get an opportunity to talk about what happened in the last uh, last race meeting and issues that come up uh, from that, and you know things and, that are hung over. This is the drivers speaking to you and all the stewards. Yeah, so so the the meetings are chaired by the race director, Michael. Um, and the stewards are present um, uh, for that. I see, okay. Uh, so it used to be uh, in the, the pre-COVID world that that was all of us in one big room and the drivers all come with their managers and uh, you know everyone has to be there. You know, if it's 3.04, they have to be there. They're there at 3.04 and mm -hmm. it's, it's very precise. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, any, every race weekend we're given a, a book uh, It's called the Minute by Minute and basically Every minute of a, of, a, of a F1 race weekend is planned. It's exactly Jeez, what is happening. That's crazy. It's, it's not it's a machine. Over. It's an absolute machine. And and then you know, of course, the support races uh, sometimes feel the pressure of that because if they have crap going on, the F1 schedule doesn't change. Mm -hmm. So so you're on interesting. time. Yeah. So the drivers' briefing is then the the, the the Friday. So they've had a chance to to drive the track and they get to comment about you know well we think this or we think that or whatever. And that's the last time we see the drivers and, and so on. And then, of course, hopefully, hopefully, right. yeah, yeah, last time <laughs> in that capacity. We always see them after that. But yes, uh, Saturday, of course, is then you got FP3 and you have qualifying and 
And usually we don't see, we don't have to speak to anyone in FB1, two or three. Uh, you know, those, those types of incidents are usually impeding or something. But you're, like that. for those sessions, um, you will still be in the storage box? Yeah, the only place. Whenever the cars are live on the track, the stewards are in the storage room. There's nowhere else for us to be. Right. Okay. Interesting. What's it like? It's not as glamorous as people think and not as glamorous as I think. You know, you were on TV. I heard so. Yeah, you're famous now, man. Congrats. Got a picture somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, 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 I I didn't look overly fancy. and I I didn't necessarily think it was fancy. It's just you guys have a ton of equipment, TV screens, computers, reading out whatever they're reading out. Yeah. I'm assuming you have the ability to in there to like, you can jump on whatever camera you want to jump on. You must be able to tell somebody to, to move cameras to see, right? Oh, that's true. Okay. Yeah. So, 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 so we, we basically have, I think, four. We have, we have four big flat screen TVs in front of us. One, we're watching the live feed. Uh, and then the other ones can be more or less anything that we want. But generally speaking, we have a video operator. There's a great company called uh, Riedel, a uh, German company who do most of the uh, video and comms and stuff uh, for uh, for F1, and we have a real operator, and he uh, has the ability to replay anything from any angle from anywhere. Uh, so whatever we want to see, uh, and in F1 these days you have you know some cars have four cameras on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, every corner, every track we go to has the local cameras, which tend to be very iffy resolution. But then, of course, you, if, you, if you get something that's caught on the feed, on the F1 feed, that's very high definition uh, and, and great to look at. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line is the, the, the operator has some fancy equipment that would blow your mind, and he, uh, and he can replay for us instantly anything. And then he can show us all the telemetry from every car as well. So we can say, you know, this guy was on the brakes, he was on the throttle, the guy behind him was closing at X speed, the guy, he was on an out lap, he was on an in lap, he was on a warm-up lap, you know. So he... You supposedly have enough information to make a good decision, mm. but and and I guess to add to that or to to aid at least for the from a driver's perspective, there's always a driver. Do they call him a driver steward? I forgot what the actual proper name is. Is that what it is? Yeah. So this is a this is somebody who has competed in the sport at a high level. Maybe not necessarily an F1 driver, or is it always somebody who's racing F1? No, it's um, to be quite honest. Now uh, I, I know f- a few of them. Uh, you have Manuel Pero, uh, Italian, um, and he. He's won Le Mans, I think, four or five times. Um, Tom Christensen, who is Le yep. Mans as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think I joke between uh, between Tom and myself, we've won nine uh, Le Mans 24 hours. He's won nine and I have won none. <laughs> but, um, uh, <laughs> you, you, you have Derek, Derek Warwick, um, you know, uh, Mika Salo, obviously, is, is F1. The role of the driver, Stuart, is to bring a driver's perspective onto an incident. They're not experts um, in, in the, the regulations in the ISC, although many of them, if not all of them, have dedicated themselves over the years to understanding uh, the rules. But really, where they're extremely useful to us as stewards is understanding the positional awareness of a driver in a particular incident. Mm-hmm. That has become very, very useful to us because None of us. You don't care whatever you drive. You, we were talking in the little break there about driving, you know, Ferraris or something. Mm-hmm. Just remember that a Formula One car, when you lift off of the throttle, the act of lifting off of the throttle is better braking than the most exotic F1 car you can imagine. A, a, a road, road car, car, right? So you get your best Lamborghini, your best Ferrari, your GT3 Porsche, and you stamp on the brakes with the stickiest tires, and you haven't approached the braking power of just, just lifting. Just the drag of an F1 car. <laughs> well, and, and, the, and the energy regeneration and, right. through the electric through the side battery, of it. Yeah. That is, is just phenomenal. Wow. Interesting. Yeah, I can imagine how, I mean, <clears throat> I can imagine how important it is to at least try and get some sort of perspective because, as you say, unless you've been in it, there's absolutely nothing that will come remotely close to having you understand what it's like to sit in that car, feel all those things, very fairly limited vision, um, and the cars are quite big. Um, so no, it's just it's yeah, just interesting. And shit happens quick as well. Yeah, very right. quick, very all, quick. All yeah. you hear over the intercom is, "I hope the race shows look at that." Yeah, oh, I hope the race shows look <laughs> at that one. <laughs> God, yeah. so, right? I mean, things are happening at usually nor- well north of two hundred kilometers an hour, and uh, yeah, Magello was the rough one, right? Which yeah. was the um, everybody went into the back of each other. Was that yeah. was that Magello? Yeah. yeah. 
That was a. You were there for that one. I was F two, F three, but so I actually watched that live. Yeah, wow. I was there for that. But you, you know, if you, that that incident, um, uh, which has been well ventilated, and, and I, I was um, uh, Mugello, the race immediately following Mugello was Russia. Yes. And as I told you earlier, the drivers then would discuss the previous race. Yes. So I participated in that discussion of the driver's perspective right. uh, on on Mugello. Because initially, I thought that. Obviously, Valtteri was going incredibly slow, but apparently he was within his right to do that. So nobody could fault him for it. Is that how the rule book saw that incident? 100%. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, I can't remember how many cars were left in the race at that time, but let's say there were 20. Um, to be quite honest, you know, uh, Valerie, Va Valtteri and, uh, and Lewis were probably the only two um, that one could say without without fault. Everyone else contributed to that to that that that, that uh, from there, but uh, not intentionally. And and it was a unique situation. It was a track that they'd never driven at before. You had a safety car line in a different location than the start line. It was it was a bit of a strange situation. As well as uh, Mugello was a very interesting track because turn one fundamentally had a, a line through it where you could pass someone on the outside because by passing on the outside in turn one, you were then on the inside for turn two, which mm -hmm. immediately followed it. So what Valtteri was doing, uh, which as a, if you had watched, if those drivers had watched F2 and F3 from the previous races, they would have known that that's exactly what the leader was going to do, was to make sure that no one could get a slipstream on them yeah, into the turn outside, one. On the so the way to do that was not to start from turn 15, uh, or 18, I think it is at Mugello, and uh, no, 15, uh, it was not to go from there because even without DRS, if you're the second guy you're going. in the line, you're going to get past. Yep. Interesting. So Very he did what was 100% correct, and right. the guys behind, um, you know, it was lots of things could have gone differently, and no one was uh, no one was at predominantly at fault. Everyone a, contributed in yeah. some way to it. Well, it, it was a shit play. show, though. It, yeah, it, it was. was a complete shit show. Very lucky. And really dangerous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure lucky. I mean, when you look at the Carlos Sainz on board from that crash, thank God for Halos, because he yeah, nearly got his well, head yeah. taken out. Yeah. Crazy. And then, just we talked about Mugello, but if we just bounce back quickly to um, Monza, the stewards were quite busy that race as well again f2 f3 for me so but yeah but that, but again very straightforward at the end of the day you know lots of lots of fans will have had a uh, you know an opinion uh, when i guess you're speaking to the lewis yes into the close yeah. pits yeah uh, but you know stewards were 1000 percent correct and then lewis took one look at it and recognized that that was what it is and i'm pretty sure is that the one where he I went just, he ran, just, running upstairs into the stewards yeah box? yeah right. i just found it crazy because and fair enough i mean i suppose the team told him to box so that's one side of it but w the position of the light on the track i can't imagine that they can see that in those cars there's two yeah but the second one is when he's in the pit lane it's too late no, I think there's two on the outside. Maybe you're not allowed to weigh in on this, so... Maybe not. You can have an opinion on it. At the end of the day, I'll say to you that uh, uh, after that incident, I suspect that every team has a person in their uh, <laughs> control room responsible yeah. for saying whether the, the lane is open or not. Yes. Um, so... Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. We can leave it at that. <laughs> and actually, the, so then the last race for you, Soji, which was again another... Lewis doing something. What was it? He was starting from he did uh, a the wrong start, place. Yeah, right? he did a, a tie, uh, um, test start. Test starting, right. Out and of then, position. No, and you were starting that one? Yes. Right, okay. okay. We're not asking you about all the problems right, and things yeah. that went wrong. Just curious. Actually, yeah, because we're going to go into some good stuff. So favorite track you've been to? Why not? Start with that. Favorite. Favorite track for the track. Uh, Got to be Spa. Yes. Why? Or Rouge, obviously. Or Rouge. Uh, and and I, I, I managed to um, convince Bird Mainland um, to uh, give me two hot laps in the... Um, in the, the AMG? Yeah, in the safety car. Because normally we do, as stewards, we get to do uh, a few laps, uh, reconnaissance, uh, sometime during the weekend. To you get to drive or be driven? Depends. Uh, if you're chairman, chairman usually drives. Or, or if, you're, if you have the driver steward there, they normally... Um, it's kind of hard to get to take the steering wheel from Tom Christensen, you know, and say, I'll drive you. No, I think <laughs> let, let him drive. Uh, but uh, I managed to do a couple of laps with Byrne once at, uh, 
at uh, Spa. But the most amazing thing is, you know, Orouge, fair enough, uh, he has to lift, and I think he goes down a gear down in the bottom of Orouge and then up to Blanchiment. But there's some other corners there where, you know, when, when he tells you that the F1 cars are flat, it, it does not make sense. I, I just cannot imagine the, 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 the G-forces the that they're feeling, and they're doing it for 60 laps or 50 laps or 40 laps or whatever it is. My neck would fall off. I think so too. Spires, yeah, I mean, Spa is de uh, definitely one of the sickest tracks in the world, and you're very lucky to have been able to, um, yeah. especially to go for a lap in the safety car. Yeah. It's funny, when you see them on TV, the safety car looks like, it's like, oh my God, is this guy even trying? And I know that he's in there probably getting right. it absolutely oh, everything. Everything. And he, that was the last, just like, last race, they were begging yeah. for the safety car yeah. to yeah, move on. It just, uh, it really, when you see, because the safety car is a high-performance car, it's not like it's some little shit box. It's a proper car. Yeah. And the Formula 1 car is just, it really just kind of gives you that perspective on the level of performance um, that the F1 cars have. There, it's, it's mind-blowing. Absolutely mind-blowing. Any dislikes in terms of tracks? Anything that you didn't enjoy? I, I, think, I think by far, um, and I don't think I can get in trouble for this, but the worst experience of a race for F1 I ever had was, I think it might have been 2010 or 11 Valencia. Spain. Some people will remember that Valencia was a, a Spanish mm -hmm. Grand Prix, and it was down at the port mm -hmm. uh, where they'd done the, uh, the sailing race, the America's Cup, mm -hmm. and it was all around down there. And I think on that day, um, if 20 cars started it, or 18, I think there may have only been 18 um, back then, but the order in which they started was the order in which they finished. Just it absolutely procession. Oh my gosh, that was the, uh, it was, uh, and the other thing about that weekend, which I will always remember, is that uh, back then Red Bull were uh, team, the, the leading team, so they got the pick of the pit, you know, so they, they were right next to the stewards box, and there was basically a, uh, a cement board wall between us, and so my entire weekend was spent either hearing a, a Red Bull revving to full thing in the pit, or when they weren't doing that, they had their music blasting. Really? So, <laughs> so dislikes Valencia and the noise. Do you think it was the track that made that race boring? Or is it the cars at the time? Or a combination uh, of? I, I think that that track turned out to be not a particularly interesting track. I mean, it was a strange design. You may remember the back straight had three or four S's in it. And basically, if you squinted your eyes and looked down it from the top, you could take a straight line through it. There were yeah. no real S's to it. Yeah. I think the only thing that Valencia is remembered for is the um, uh, Australian guy um, who clipped the back of the other car, went up in the air and took out, took out the sign over the track. Weber? Weber, Mark yeah. Weber. Look back at If you want to see a scary yeah, incident, Mark Weber went flying and actually took out a sign. Jesus. That was hung over It's the actually track. a very famous um, incident. You see it on like all the top 10 like crashes and stuff like that. Maybe yeah. I'm confusing that with because Alonso had a bad one where he went flying too, didn't he? I think he barrel rolled at the same barrel time rolled. too. Yeah, yeah. Was it Germany though, I think? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that wasn't the same track. Not the same track. Um, um, how much interaction do you get with drivers? If any, at all. You mentioned, um, or 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 heads of, of teams. You mentioned, you know, Christian Horner. Yeah. Um, the the truth is, it, the the only uh, reason that we have to interact with drivers or team principals or, or team managers is, you know, a hearing in the stewards room. Other than that, uh, you know, when you travel with the F one show, obviously, you know, you see each other and and people, you know, have common interests and so on. Lewis has been to Barbados. He's done our, you know, uh, festival of speed that we've done here and so on. So um, maybe he might recognize that's a guy I know from Barbados, and we'll say hello. Uh, I don't really have a reason. I'm not mates with these folks or anything yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, so the interaction really is a formal in, 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 in interaction. But um, yeah, within this, within a storage room, it's a it's a confidential forum, and um, they're good guys and they're they're professionals. You know, that's one of the big things that we have to understand. Uh, you know, being down here in the Caribbean, is we're amateur mo level of motorsport. You know, when these guys are, are they're at work. We're mm -hmm. at play. Mm -hmm. They're at work. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, obviously, the starting, um, starting has definitely, I would imagine, has given you insight into into the sport that most people wouldn't have. Um, and now you've you've taken, um, you know, I guess a much more 
professional approach towards Formula One rather than it being some hobby or something that you just watch on a weekend when it comes on on TV. But I know um, that you've been a fan of motorsport and Formula One for a very long time. And I'm curious to know how has stewarding or how has becoming a professional Formula One steward um, affected your relationship as a fan of this sport or has it in any way? I, I think it, it certainly has, Jeremy. It's, it's a good question. Uh, first of all, I, you know, I, I no longer, uh, have, after becoming an F1 steward, I no longer would manifest any um, favoritism or, 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 you know, that's my favorite driver, that's my favorite team or whatever. But we're all fans of this sport. Every steward I've ever met is passionate about motorsport. And you can't be passionate about something without having, you know, wishes for this person or, or, or not. It doesn't affect um, my enjoyment of it. It probably more affects my, uh, the way in which I am able to interact with my friends because they all want to, you know, to Poke get me you. Into, uh, yeah, yeah. Into, into giving an opinion on, 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 on something. And I and and I won't. My 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 opinion, I don't think, is more valid than any anybody body else's when I'm outside the steward's room. Uh, but how is it? It's given me a different appreciation uh, uh, for the sport, and it's opened uh, a lot of doors. I think, and I, I hope for for many other Barbadians to to do, whether it be uh, the officials' route or you know we see Zane, who I know you all had a good talk talk yep. with, and a lot of what we have done has opened doors and paved ways for for mm -hmm. people to do that. It was interesting when you said, you know, this is a job for people because it reminded me a lot of when Zane was here. How, yeah. You know, he's, he's about work. And it's hard work for him, although he loves it. It's about getting the job done no matter what. So you can almost see a change in, in people it's from in mentality. passion for a sport, but then it's what you do. Yeah. So I thought yeah. that was pretty interesting. It is, for um, sure. Have there been any tough moments in your career as an F1 steward? Any decisions that stick out in your mind that were tough to make that you can speak on yeah uh, yeah i don't want to i don't want to no, I, I wouldn't any, speak uh, I, I can't i think when, when you when you started to ask the question I, th I thought you were going a different road which is um you know the the buck stops with the stewards yeah at at, at, at ever uh, you know at the end of the day to use the f fia words we're the supreme authority at the event so we carry with us you can imagine that our bible is the National Sporting Code, and all of the entrants, all the competitors, all the drivers, they're expecting a fair competition. Yeah. And we have a big responsibility on our hands to deliver that fair, comp uh, that fair competition to them. So at the start of every race, there is, I have some nervousness and, 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 and so on, you know, in, in, in the hope that, you know, I don't screw this up, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, decisions could have huge impacts on teams and drivers and one or two points. Yeah. Yeah, little points have, have millions of dollars of, <laughs> of things. So you, you want to do it right and you want to be prepared. And, and I have channeled that energy into being prepared. How can you be, be prepared for it? I think, when you, as I said, when you ask the question, you're going to say tough. For me, the tough has been where, you know, you're at an event and there's an injury um, uh, to a competitor, to Marshall or something like that, and 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 you always question yourself, what more could you have done? You know, what 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 was that that situation? And ninety nine point nine percent of the time, the truth is, motorsport sport is dangerous and stuff does happen, and there is nothing more that you can do. But that to me is is the tough part. Is if you have to deal with an incident like that. Yeah, yeah, that I appreciate that answer. Yeah, um, I guess my last. I mean, we spoke off air a little bit, but where do you see motorsport heading? You're somewhat close to the sport. I mean, battery, you know, electronic, uh, electrification is coming in a big way. Um, I know there's big rule changes for 2022. Um, where do you see it going? Well, there's no doubt that the um, this wave of electrification, if we can call it that, um, is happening. Uh, I don't think Formula E is the is the solution. Um, so I think for a while it will remain some form of a hybrid. Um, the industrial, the internal combustion engine uh, is, still has a role to play. And certainly what F1 has done in, in, in getting the level of horsepower out of 1500cc engines, is, it just shows what's there and the technology is being developed. So where do I think it's going? Um, I hope that the pendulum personally has swung a bit it's starting to swing away from 
these very sterile tracks with uh, acres of, of, of asphalt runoff. And what we've seen with these tracks that have been used this year because of COVID and they haven't been able to lose, leave Europe and you're you know, using Mugello, there's no question of track limits because there is yes. a, a gravel trap yeah. and it's slower to go out there. So I think that the pendulum where it is going, which I know is not really your question, and maybe, maybe mm -hmm. it's about the engines and the technology. I would, I'm not sure about that. I think it, it's going to be electric, and there's going to be more and more dominance mm -hmm. of electric in, in, in this and mm -hmm. renewables and, and so on. But I think what is happening yeah. is that uh, we're going to see tracks which are um, providing limits with consequences. Mm -hmm. Because today, there is no consequence if you take a track like Abu Dhabi. Yeah, there is. There is no. You, you can miss your breaking point by a hundred meters and still have enough time to stop before the possibility of a wall. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas if you miss your breaking point in some of these old old tracks, you're going to be two wheels in the gravel, if not all four. Mm -hmm. So that changes the driving style. It changes, you know, what you're going to really do. So like I think that. that that's going to happen. I think the pendulum can swing back. I mean, a I bit. think that would be amazing, right? The combination of that plus the new regs, which will hopefully allow for closer racing, plus the budget caps. Um, for, or for team spending, which will hopefully pull teams closer together as well now. Um, I mean, I know that will take a few years to settle in regardless, I know, but um, I think it's, I think the combination of those and the changes that they're making to your rules in regards to the cars could make Formula, well, it's not exciting now, but I would love, when they had that restart and basically ran, ended up with reverse grid and Pierre Gasly ended up on podium in Monza, that was the most exciting race that we've had in recent times. And I just think it, I would love to see more of that in Formula One, not two Mercedes on the front that disappear from the rest. And I don't think it'll happen, but I agree with you. Well, you know what I would encourage you to do, Jeremy, and I'll encourage every, anyone who's listening to this is, um, if you have the F1 app and that's where you're watching uh, F1, F2 and F3 is on there as well. Phenomenal. Watch yeah. F2 it's and F3. Racing. That is yeah. racing. Yeah. You were mentioning Mick Schumacher. I mean, I've watched Mick Schumacher now for five years. He's been in, in series that I've been, uh, you know, and I've watched his development. And many of them, Lando's come through that. Yeah. Yeah. That is racing. I think it is. It's fantastic. Robert Schwarzman is going to yeah. be a Formula One world champion when he gets there. At some He's point. so talented. Uh, you're pretty close to F2. What do you think? I mean, is there some people that, like Callum Isla, a lot of people talk about? Is there any drivers that stick out for you from F2 that are going to make big jumps? Yeah, again, that's a, a probably an area that I, I, I don't go into, but I think that the, 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 the championship does um, lend itself to the best coming to the top okay. because the equipment is out of the question, right? Mm -hmm. All the equipment is the same. And when you look at F2, it's the same six or eight guys who are qualifying uh, in the top five or six positions, yeah. and it's still the same six or eight guys who are winning the races. So uh, you know that it is a good feeder series. It is, in fact, doing what it's meant to do and weeding out the, the best. racing is phenomenal. It I is. think it's great. It is. Way we're, better than Formula One. Yeah. We're going to pause for one minute, and then we're going to end with five minutes. All right. Um, I think we're going to end off just talking about Rally Barbados coming up at uh, the end of this month. Uh, what, are your, what are your goals for Rally? Obviously, it's a new machinery for you. What are your goals uh, for King of the Hill and Rally Barbados? Honestly, number one and only goal is to have a lot of fun. Okay. Uh, the truth is that uh, at 56 years old, um, you know, the eyes are a little bit different than, than, than the young boys. And, uh, you know, my willingness to go at 105% um, is not quite there. Uh, but the R5 encourages you push the limits and we have a really really fun group Roger and David and Saul and uh, Stuart and myself once the guys get going and they start pushing each other we're all going to push but the truth is that that group is so competitive we have demonstrated Stuart and I um, and Roger and all, all of us there is nothing between these cars mm -hmm. nothing it comes down to driver choice of tires bit of setup and when we start pushing each other on the days, it could, you know, the top two or three guys, if they're separated by one second, it will surprise me. Uh, I think, you know, obviously, obvious question to do with Rally Barbados then is, you know, can block in an R5. But we have home field advantage, but he also has significant skill and uh, he 
he certainly has demonstrated that he is willing to drive at 110% all the time. All it the time. is indeed. Not a bit of not mine syndrome. Yeah. And uh, if he rolls the car, it's not really a big problem. Well, we'll hope to have you back on after Rally Barbados yeah. to hear how it all went. If you want to end sure. us off. Yeah, no, I mean, just, um, of course, we wish you all the best in Rally Barbados. We'll be watching. I'm sure you'll have a blast. Um, try to bring it home in one piece. Um, but more importantly, just thank you so much for your time. I know you're a busy guy. Um, and uh, we're just really appreciative of you coming and giving us some time chatting about F1. It's not often you get to sit in a room with the F1 short. Sure. So it was nice to pick your brain. Um, and yeah, just want to thank you very much for your time. Jeremy, thanks. And James, I, I, I thank you for the opportunity. I think it's important also really to say maybe, you know, motorsport has been the number one sport in Barbados on, on different ways of, of, of measuring it. And it's not, uh, the sport is not the number one sport because of I'm where I am. I'm where I am because that sport has been so well subscribed by the spectators, by the by the competitors, by the sponsors, whatever it is. So I'm just lucky to be in the right place at the right time that I could get to 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 to, to be there. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I really I'm very very proud when I go to be able to say I'm representing Barbados and and uh, you know it works well. So I appreciate you guys the op uh, giving me the opportunity to talk about it. Yeah, Happy course. to talk anytime. Pleasure. And uh, I'll sure to report that I had a lot of fun in Rally Barbados. Good. Well, Great. we'll see. We'll see you out there for sure. Thank you. Thank you. Don't forget to like and subscribe, and we'll see you next time. Cheers.